0: How does someone become part of a family? Is it by having extremely good looks? Many talents? Do parents that are prospective parents join around the playground, observe the children, and then draft based upon potential? Of course not. The primary way we are joined to families is through birth or adoption. And the Bible picks up on these images to describe our inclusion in the family of God. One thinks of Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do not be amazed that I told you, you must be born Again. Or Paul's language of adoption in Galatians 4. When time came to completion, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth His Spirit into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Any Christian that you have ever met is a Christian not because they are really, really good looking or really, really talented. They are a Christian because God desired to save them. Because they've been born again by the Spirit. Because they've been adopted into His family. Salvation is all of God. It is His work from beginning to end. We we have a small part to play. We do all the sinning, and he—he he does all the saving. For us to try and take credit for our salvation is akin to an infant who was just born claiming credit for its birth. Did you see what I did, mom? Or maybe, maybe better. If you can imagine waking up in the back of an ambulance with tubes everywhere and someone reporting to you, I saved your life. It was a terrible accident. You were flatlining, but I saved you. And you responded, well, really, both of us should get some credit here. You know, I've been working out recently, eating right. You wouldn't have been able to restart my heart if I hadn't been doing that exercise. No, no. We, we don't contribute. It's all the work of God. And so we get into the family of God by the work of God, through the, the, the grace of God. We defined grace, as we talked about it last week, as getting the opposite of what we deserve. It's, it's like a, a child uh, who disobeys and should be sent to timeout or some other punishment, and instead of, being sent to timeout or getting that punishment, they are, are given a cupcake, right? It's the opposite of what you deserve. We deserve death stretched out across eternity in hell. We deserve the wrath of God because we are sinners and we have all done things our way rather than God's way. We've all listened to our hearts instead of God's voice. We deserve death, but in Christ, God gives to us life. We deserve wrath, but God, through Jesus Christ, adopts us into his family and gives us his wealth. This is the message of Christianity, that God loves bad people so much That he sent Jesus to die on the cross in order to forgive them. So that if anyone stops trusting their own good works and starts trusting in Jesus, they will be declared good forever and be saved from the right judgment of God. That's the message of Christianity. And that's kind of what we were trying to figure out or sort out the last time we were together in Acts chapter 15. Remember, the question had come, well, what does someone have to do to be included in God's family? Is faith enough? Because some some had suggested that those Gentiles who had been converted needed also to be circumcised in order to be included in the family of God. And so we asked, is faith enough? And we answered that question by saying, yes, absolutely, faith is enough. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So that's how you get into the family. And that was the question in kind of the the first half of Acts chapter 15. And this week we're going to consider the question, well, how do we live as the family of God? How do we live together? What are the characteristics of God's family? The church... God's family is built by grace and characterized by love. That's our our main idea this morning. The church is built by grace and characterized by love. And the exhortation is that we would love God, each other, and his word. Your outline follows suit. Let's pray and we'll begin Father, we confess that we are great sinners. This week, we have coveted. Some of us have lusted. Some of us have been overly absorbed with thoughts of death and uselessness. Some of us have been overly angry with children. Some of us have refused to obey authorities in our lives. Some of us have insisted on our own way and broken friendships. Some of us have sinned against our spouses. Some of us have indulged in, in coarse joking. Lord, we, we confess all these sins and more. Our, our sins, they are many, but we thank you that your grace, it is more. Father, we come to you once more this morning asking for that great grace, asking for that fresh forgiveness, knowing you will grant it. Because though our Sin is great. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is greater. And we ask that as we submit ourselves to these words this morning, Your Word, that we would be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. That we would become and practice what we've been declared. Holy! God, do this work in us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we are in Acts chapter 15. We've come a long way. We started back in Acts chapter 1, and we have summarized the whole book. As Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out. And as the church goes out, God brings people in. The whole book revolves around this mini kind of great commission in verse 8 of chapter 1, where Jesus tells his disciples, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea in Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Jesus then ascends to his throne in heaven from where he rules and reigns and pours out his Holy Spirit. That happens in chapter 2. And when that Spirit is poured out, all of God's people begin proclaiming his wonderful works in various languages. And the church begins to grow. And we see over and over again the word going forth and spreading. And yet the success of God's word, the furthering of the gospel is not without hardship. It's not without opposition. We see in more than one place, the messengers of God's gospel are buried and yet the message goes on. We see those who herald God's word opposed, and yet the gospel going onward. It's one of the major themes in Acts, is that in the face of adversity, God's word prevails. It will not fail. And so that brought us up into uh, chapter 13 through the beginning of 15 where Paul and Barnabas went on their missionary journey and they shared the gospel with Gentiles in a number of cities. And all of a sudden, the church had seen some Gentiles come to faith as, as we talked about with Cornelius and Peter in chapter 10. But all of a sudden, there are a whole lot of Gentiles coming to Christ. And some Jewish folks come from Jerusalem and they insist verse 1 of chapter 15, that unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. And that prompted the discussion I referred to in our introduction today about who is in the family of God. The answer is those who have received the grace of God and responded with faith in Christ. Peter, Paul, Barnabas, James all argue for this. I think Peter makes it most plain in verse 11. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, that's we Jews, in the same way they are those Gentiles. The Gentiles and the Jews have received the same Holy Spirit. They're saved by the same grace. Nothing more is required but faith to be in the family of God. James concurs with Peter in verse 19, after appealing to the Old Testament Scriptures. He says, Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. But instead, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. And we got to this portion of the text last week, and it is admittedly confusing. It's almost as if James speaks out of both sides of his mouth. We don't want to add any additional burdens to the Gentiles. They don't have to do anything else. Faith is enough but let's give them this list of things that they have to do. What's what's going on here? Well, this this is a really interesting kind of sentence, uh, and there are about a billion different interpretations. I think I read eight to ten of them before I settled on one. I'm just going to give you two. Um, One interpretation is that... um, no, I'm sorry, I should tell you where everybody agrees. Everybody agrees that these are not conditions for salvation, okay? And so um, these are just things that would be optional, suggested, but not in any way conditions for salvation. But, but the first interpretation is that the, this is a kind of a sampling from the Levitical law. I think it's in chapters 18 and 19, where they've just taken different pieces and said these things will be really offensive uh, to Jews, so please don't do them for their benefit, as you guys fellowship together. I just don't think that one makes a whole lot of sense. It seems to go against the grain of what Jesus says in Mark. It's not what goes into a person that defiles them or makes them unclean. It's what comes out. It goes against what God has done in Acts chapter 10 when he tells Peter to rise, kill, and eat and to not call unclean what God has called clean. It goes against the grain of Christ being the one who makes us clean. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness and all sin. So I don't, I don't think that quite fits. And so the second interpretation The one I've adopted in in my message this morning is that these four things are all tied together. They all exemplify what goes on in pagan worship in their temples. And so in the first century, you had many, many temples and they kind of doubled sometimes as like meat markets or grocery stores right? Meat was a delicacy. You didn't eat meat every day. You didn't just, like, roll out to the grocery store and pick up some some bacon and, you know, a ribeye, or Elsie likes cube steak, I learned this morning. Uh, you didn't, I don't know how she did that, but but you, you didn't just roll out and get it. But where you could get it was in these temples. And so uh, what would happen is, People would come in, and the temple would be to this god or that god. They would make sacrifices. Part of the sacrifice would be burned up. Part of the sacrifice would be eaten, and another part of it would be packaged up and sold, so you could eat it later. The temples were almost like uh, meat markets slash uh, restaurants in some ways. It is really sad that you that meat was so rare. I don't know if I would have survived uh, in the ancient world. And so, what is what's being prohibited here? is the participation in these pagan festivals. You with me? And so when James is uh, speaking here, he's saying nothing else, we shouldn't trouble or cause difficulties among those Gentiles who have turned to God. But they can't, they cannot, we need to tell them, they cannot continue to participate in these pagan festival activities. Well, Why would he say that? And I think the answer is that there's this controversy over, do the Gentiles have to become culturally Jewish in order to be part of the people of God? And so they're saying, no, absolutely not. They can bring their culture, they can stay who they are and be part of God's people. But what they can't do is bring the sinful practices of their culture with them when they become part of the people of God. He's saying uh, the Gentiles don't have to become Jews, but they can't live as pagans either. They have to live as if Jesus is their Lord. Their lives have to be characterized by love for God. And I think specifically, like this is the place where you get meat. You can go there, sit down, and, and have a meal. It'd be quite possible if you're Gentile Christian, you're like, you know what? I'm ready for some meat tonight. I know there's a, a festival down at uh, Zeus's temple, and so I'm going I'm going to Zeus's tonight. I got a resi at seven. I'm gonna go down. I, they're all worshiping. I know Zeus isn't real, but I'm just gonna have a steak there. They have the best steak in town. And James is saying, uh, don't don't do that. Because just by participating in the service, you are adding your voice to what they're teaching, what they're proclaiming. You, by being in that venue, are participating in false worship. And so the problem here, just like in Corinthians, and we're going to talk about it more in a minute, is not the menu, but the venue. Context, What well, it matters. The primary call we should see, though, is that indeed the Gentiles, like the Jews, like us, are called to turn to God. Becoming a Christian is evidenced by obedience. When we do put our faith in Christ, when we do experience grace, that root bears the fruit of repentance. We cannot come to Christ and bring our sin in tow with us. What I mean by that is, uh, we, yes, we give to Christ our sins. He dies for our sins. But, but we can't just go, I, I'm a Christian, but I really, really enjoy stealing. And so I'm a Christian, and I'm still going to rob banks. That's, those two things are incompatible. One is a denial of the other. And you might go, well, that's ridiculous. But it's not, it's not so ridiculous. There are many Christians in our culture and maybe even some of us in our church who want to have Jesus as sort of a life coach who helps us kind of accomplish our dreams and our wants and our desires and approves of whatever sins we like to participate in. This is not the perspective of Scripture. Jesus is not a life coach. He's Lord. What it means to have Jesus as Lord, what it means to be a Christian, is that when Jesus says whatever he says, you say, yes, sir. It means he calls the shots in your life, not you. One of the first steps of following Christ is obedience. I wonder, is there something in your life, is there an area of your life where you have said, no God, I'm not going to obey you about that? Because that's inconsistent. It's a sin to be repented of. We must turn away from sin and towards Christ. Part of being in the family of God, those who have received grace, is being characterized by a love for God above all else. It's really a simple question, right? Do you love God more than your sin? I mean, for them, do you love God more than these pagan festivals that's been part of your life, part of your culture? Do you love God enough to turn from these sinful practices? Do you love God enough to renounce that? I mean, for us, is it, do you love God enough to stay in a difficult marriage? Do you love God enough to obey what he says about sexuality? Do you love God enough to attend church on Sunday morning? Gather together with believers? Do you love God enough to obey him? Or is your Christian life kind of a a ruse? Where at the end of the day, you obey you. See, Jesus, he's he's not a life coach. He's Lord. And he's told us in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other you only have one master. And the question is, do you, do we love God? Are we characterized by a love for God or a love for worldliness? good way to tell is that worldliness will make sin look normal and it will make righteousness look strange. Jesus tells us in 1 John 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possession is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. And so step one in this counsel is clarifying the gospel and showing that even though you are saved by grace alone through faith alone, faith that saves is never alone. It bears the fruit of repentance. Are there parts, what parts of God's word are you struggling to obey? Areas where you struggle to obey threaten to steal away your delight in God. They they might bring a a short-term pleasure, but ultimately it will bring you into long-term ruin. Sin will destroy you. Don't entertain it. Don't bring a, I don't know how how much do lions weigh, like 300 pounds, sound about right? Don't bring a 300-pound lion into your house and think it's not going to attack you and be surprised when it turns on you and devours you. Don't play with sin. Turn. Turn to God. When we experience grace, we will be characterized by a love for God, which is marked by turning away a repenting of sin. We also will be characterized by a love for one another. Let's look at this this letter that they write in verse 22. They come to a conclusion about what the gospel is, what it means to be in the family of God, and how we should live as the family of God together, Jew and Gentile. And so they write a letter from this Jerusalem church to the church in Antioch and a bunch of the other churches that are spread out, so that everybody gets on the same page. This is what we read in verse 22. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. They wrote, From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. The point of the letter is to, again, clarify the gospel and to cultivate fellowship, unity, and peace between Jews and Gentiles. They want to make sure there is peace and unity within the church. Now, this charge not to share in pagan worship activities, I think, also serves to shed light on the sensitive matter about eating meat offered to idols and meat in general. Right? It's always wrong for the Gentiles to participate in a pagan worship festival, but it's not always wrong for them to eat. And we know from, from elsewhere that they're allowed to eat meat offered to idols. It just depends on the context, right? We said it's not about the menu, but the venue. The social context of the meat eating determines its meaning and its morality. So meat on its own, even meat offered to idols, has no significance other than being food from God. But if you put the food and the idols together in relational context of a pagan ceremony, Everything changes. To eat meat offered to idols in a pagan religious ceremony, it's not a matter of conscience, but a matter of sin. Paul says it is to participate with demons. And so the context of the eating of meat, well, it says something. You guys know this to be true, right? There, everyone knows that there's a difference between a man and a woman sharing conversation and cake at a child's birthday party and a man and a woman sharing conversation and cake in a dimly lit restaurant. Right? There's a big difference there. Likewise, the context of the eating is going to determine whether it's right or if it's sin. And I think a really neat thing has happened here. Jesus said, you, you can't participate in this sin because, not because eating the meat's wrong, but because it would be worshiped, out, it would be participation in these festivals. And I think at a minimum, this sheds light on Jewish-Gentile relations by forcing the Gentiles to think about how their eating will impact those they eat with. And so they have to think about the context, if they, what it might, how it might affect a Jew who has kept all the clean laws their whole life, if they just show up with a bunch of bacon and sit down next to them. They have to think about how their eating impacts others. Paul's really helpful here as he deals with this issue in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read to you what he says. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Verse 4 About eating food sacrificed to idols, then we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. Down to verse 8. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple. Won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never eat meat again so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. He continues this idea over in chapter 10 and in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, Whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Just as I also try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of the many, so that many may be saved. And so you can kind of see the idea here is that they would be forced to think about how they're eating and how their eating impacts Jewish consciences as well as. Other Gentiles who are used to going to pagan festivals, who can't in good conscience eat the meat offered to idols because they think the idols are real and that this is an act of worship. And so if you are going to participate in eating meat offered to idols, you've got to consider the context. You've got to consider who you are with. Similar thing today, I always think this is the best illustration, it's just with alcohol, right? Right? Christians vary on this; they, they think differently. But if you are a, a Christian who who drinks alcohol, and you have a brother or sister who abstains over to your home, and maybe they they abstain and they have alcoholism in their family, it's not a great idea. In fact, it might be wrong of you, especially if they're the former alcoholic. To hey, I'm going to have a beer here, here. Would you like one? Right. That might cause my brother or my sister. To sin might afflict their conscience. And so even though I might have a right to do something, doesn't mean that I should. Likewise, the Gentiles, they have the right to eat meat offered to idols. But that doesn't mean they should. There are situations where it will be more honoring to God for them to abstain so that they might not give offense to Jews or to the church or to anyone else. You'd be willing to give up their rights in order to promote unity and peace. And so we need to be a people who are willing to give up our rights in order to pursue relationship. You with me? I think at a minimum, with all the talk of food, the Gentile believers here have to think about how they're going to interact with their Jewish brothers and sisters. And so, like on the front end of Acts chapter 15, you have Jews troubling Gentiles about circumcision and about keeping the law of Moses. And James says, don't do that, don't trouble them. And on the other side, we have the potential for Gentiles to trouble Jews about eating meat offered to idols. And in the middle, you have James going, don't do that. And so you kind of also have this prohibition. Don't trouble each other. Like, don't be troublemakers. Be peacemakers. You know, it's just like, you have the the rule keepers. We we think keeping these rules is a good thing to do. And you have rule breakers. (laughs) Like, these things, it's okay to eat meat offered to idols. It's, It's okay to keep the law of Moses. Neither is helping you into the kingdom of God. Neither makes you a member of God's family. But you need to learn how to bring your two worlds together in a way that promotes peace and unity. You need to be willing to give up your rights so that you can be in relationship with one another. It's like Philippians 2 kind of mindset. Right? Consider others more significant than yourselves. It's a Christ-like attitude. Jesus, who didn't, didn't have to come to earth, had every right to remain in heaven and leave us dead in our sins. Gave up his right so that he could be in relationship with us. He chose to suffer and to be wronged so that we wouldn't have to suffer an eternity separated from God under the wrath of God. We should follow his example. We should be willing to give up rights that we might have in order to serve and love one another. The church of God is built by grace and characterized by love. This this whole section is built around unity and peace. And and so I think a question we have to ask that, that you must ask yourself is, do I live in such a way as to promote peace and unity within the church? Am I a troublemaker? Or am I a peacemaker? God would call us to make peace Notice too who is given credit for this letter in verse 28. It was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you. They're they're crediting God with this letter that that they've written. Well, how'd that happen? Did they just all sit around in silence and wait for a voice? I mean, Indeed, God had prophets in Acts, and sometimes he spoke to people in Acts. That that happens. But based on what we have in front of us, it doesn't seem like that's what happened, right? They had a whole council about this matter. They debated with one another, and they studied the word of God together in community. And once they agreed about what God's word said, they said, Thus saith the Lord. The Holy Spirit has illuminated the text to us. We have a right understanding of it. This is what the Holy Spirit says. This is the decision we came to on the basis of God's word. That's how they determined the will of God in this situation. I wonder, how do do you discover God's will for you? Do you do it all by yourself? I mean, you you probably, I I suppose you could, but you probably wouldn't be as good at it like when we try to figure out what God has for us all on our own, we we are susceptible to our own blindnesses and biases. We're going to do much better if we seek to discover God's will for us around a Bible and in community with other Christians. It's really, really important, this whole idea of peace and unity within the church. And do notice, they are In churches. The Bible doesn't have any idea about a lone ranger Christianity. An isolated Christian is a contradiction in terms. A churchless Christian is an oxymoron. The Bible always has Christians in real tangible fellowship with one another. Like if the church didn't matter, this council wouldn't have happened. If doctrine didn't matter, they wouldn't have met. They would have said, hey, no big deal. Believe whatever you want. Not worried about Jews and Gentiles interacting in the same church. They can just believe what they want, behave how they want. Just do you. It's not that important. But it does matter. The church is the amphitheater in which God has decided to display his glory. He says, you want to see what I'm like? Look at the church. He says, you want to know what my multifaceted wisdom is like? Look at the church, Ephesians 3.10. So I'm going to make myself known in the world, not through the lips of angels, but through the lips of sinners made saints. He commissions the church to make Jesus known. The church matters. Relationship matters. Friend matters. Part of God's will for you is to belong to and participate in a local church. You can't claim to be part of the body of Christ when you are severed from a local assembly. It's dangerous and foolish. God has determined that we will express our love for one another, all those one another commandments in the New Testament, will express that love concretely to people that we are committed to in a local church. Can't substitute just your family or your Christian friends. There's a reason God puts us together with people that are different than us. right? I sat in a Sunday school room this morning with people who like Hallmark movies. Yuck, right? We probably wouldn't hang out a whole lot. but you know what we have in common? is greater than what we don't have in common. Christ! And God has brought us together here to demonstrate his goodness and the power of his reconciling work. The church is such a gift. Let's not not miss out on it. It's an opportunity to express our love for God and for one another as those who have been saved by God's grace alone. Those who are in God's family, which is built by grace, are characterized by love for God, love for one another, and love for God's word. Look with me at verse 30. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch. Gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, the church rejoiced because of its encouragement, or that word could be translated comfort also. Both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message. After spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. You'll notice verse 34 is not there. Uh, that's just because it wasn't in the oldest and best manuscripts. It shouldn't be there, and so it's been omitted. There's probably a note on it in your Bible, verse 35. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. And so this this letter is read, and the people rejoice. You go, well, why? Why? They're rejoicing because they are comforted and encouraged by the gospel. They don't have to do anything else. They've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's going to be their joy to turn from their sins and follow Jesus. They're they're not looking at obedience to these provisions that have been laid out as something that's, you know, white-knuckle and hard and awful. They're looking at it as their joy. It's like giving a child a command. Son... Go eat ice cream. I'm not getting any back talk on that one. Right, yes! Right, I'm delighted to go eat ice cream. This is how we should respond to the commands of God. They're excited. They've been saved by grace. They're being characterized by love, and they're willing to obey these things. They understand 1 John 5 3. This is what love for God is to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden. It's a joy. They love God's word. They rejoice from uh, the letter they receive as God's word. They are also encouraged with God's word. They're strengthened, uh, some translations say, with many words. I like how mine says it, with a long message. They love to hear God's word. Paul and Barnabas stay there and they are teaching and proclaiming what? The word of the Lord. They understand something I think many of us do not. Our relationship with God and our growth in godliness, our, our very life all starts with the word of God. God has always created by his word. He called forth the universe into existence by his word. He called Abraham to himself by his word. He called out the nation of Israel from Egypt by his word. He redeemed the church by his word made flesh. And he speaks to us through his word. It's this word that gives life to the church. It's his word that has the power of salvation within it. It's his word that empowers us in the process of sanctification. His word creates his people. It makes his people and it matures his people. Right? 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is God-breathed and God-inspired and is useful for correcting, rebuking, and teaching. Ephesians 4 The church is giving the gifts of leadership and teachers. Why? So they can grow into the full maturity of Christ. God's Word is what nourishes us and sustains us. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Do you live by this word? Do you love it? When I preach long messages, are you rejoicing? Or are you waiting for lunch? The church, God's family, is built by grace. It's characterized by love for God, a love for one another, and a love for His Word. Let us be marked by these things. pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us, that You have sought to save us from our sins. That you have come to a group of rebels and chosen to adopt them into the royal family. And that you've done this through the substitutionary death and justifying resurrection of Jesus. We thank you that in the death of Christ we have our sins forgiven. That when we consider the resurrection of Christ we can be encouraged and freed from our fear of death. Lord, we thank you so much for grace. We thank you that the word of the gospel, the words of Jesus are, it is finished, not go fix yourself. Lord, indeed, you have put an end to all our sin. It's all been laid upon Christ. For this reason, we give you praise and honor and glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.